It's Ryan Leone, and he has a book called Wasting Talent, which is about your life when you were in prison, before prison, how you got to prison, in prison, and then now your life clean and sober and happy and doing your doing your best life right now. Yeah, we well, yeah, the book's a novel. So it's a it's, novel. It's like a fictional account of it. Okay. Um it's basically covers the years before I went to prison the first time I've been to prison three times, but the first time I went, um, that covers like the junkie years before that. My years is, yeah, my years as a heroin addict, which is, so you're like literally a year, you're 35, 35. So you're literally a year older than me. And I'm like, you've been to prison three times in your life. And what, how long were each of those stints? The first one I got sentenced to five years. I did four and a half. Okay. The second time was for um, a probation violation. I did 90 days, but actually in prison, not right. jail. Um, and then the last time was 16 months, and I had been sentenced to three years, eight months. But you do like half time in state. So, it, you know, it doesn't translate literally to right. three years, eight months. Okay. So I'm just going to ask you a thousand questions because like I've never had anyone on my podcast who's been to prison. I mean, my husband's been to prison, but he was in isolation. So it's not like the same thing, but I want to know everything about you. I'm really curious to know, like, where did you grow up? I grew up in Santa Barbara, California. You grew up in Santa Barbara. Picturesque town. And what about the family? Family, good, um, upper middle class family. No trauma. Um, no abuse for me. My parents have been married 40 years. Great people. Um, you're probably like, why are you, why were you a heroin addict? Right. <laughs> I'm, like, <laughs> Is that, I'm trying to figure it out. Um, you know, I think in retrospect, I had really debilitating ADD. Okay. And it made me insecure because it took me a lot longer to learn how to read than my peers. I got held back a grade in sixth grade. And then by the time I got to high school, that's when, you know, everybody starts trying drugs and all of a sudden I didn't feel insecure anymore. I mean, that's the common tale with drug addiction. What was your first drug? Probably um, over-the-counter medications like coracetin, cough and cold. Wow. Um, Robitussin and stuff you like robo-tripped. that. You robo-tripped. Yes. And you loved it. I, I don't know if I loved it, but I loved it more than the reality that I was living. You know, I like, I loved getting out of my own head. Um, and then I got into, you know, I started smoking weed, I started drinking and I got expelled from three schools within the span of a month when I was in high school and my parents didn't know what to do. They were freaked out. So they sent me to programs for troubled adolescents. I went to a wilderness program. I saw a kid slit his wrist the first day that I was there. I was really traumatized. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. We got to stop. Okay. So you were at a wilderness program. Yep. For kids that were troubled. Mm-hmm. And how did you how did you see this kid slit his wrist? So the first day that we were there, I mean, the whole, um, I guess the whole concept behind it was we'd been enabled by our families. They wanted to break us down materially and then build us back up. So they teach us survival skills, like how to make fire with two sticks, stuff like that. We'd have to hike like eight, eight, 10 miles a day with 80 pound backpacks on. Um, first day that I was there, we woke up and they had us 
like eat this big can of peaches when we first got there. That's their, you know, holistic detox remedy. It's, it's really bizarre. Canned I, peaches. Canned pe- and I always heard, and I don't know if this is true, I've never been able to substantiate this, but I always heard that that song, Millions of Peaches, by the President of the United States of America, wrote that song about this place. Because he'd been there? I don't know. I've Millions go- I've go- of peaches. Yes, yes, that song. Peaches for me. Yeah, my wife, my, my young wife followers hates, are like, what are you talking my about? My wife hates that song. Yeah. I always put it on, and I'm like, I, I think they're talking You're about You're like, this, this was my childhood. <laughs> oh, my God. Canned peaches. That can't be good for you. All the nutrients are sucked out. It's just corn syrup. Yeah, well, in most of the kids, you know, it's not like we were coming off heroin or alcohol or, you know, or well, yeah, probably a lot of alcohol, but weren't coming off heroin i think that the concept was that it would just um you know it was like a detoxification okay you know i don't know i don't know i don't know what they were thinking i'm thinking about it i'm like i don't know yeah yeah let's give them some canned peaches which are in tin cans which just raise their tin levels and it's full corn syrup and yeah that'll be great for them yeah so mostly sugar yeah and so this guy didn't like that right and he didn't want to be there so I woke up the first night that I was there. And first of all, you get kidnapped in the middle of the night. When I've you go heard to these about places. this. These people come and like grab you. It's really traumatic. Really traumatic. Yeah, I've heard about these places. You know, when you're 15 and you got these two burly guys standing above you and they're like, all right, you're going to snowboarding camp. But you know that that's not where you're going uh, because all of my friends around me were getting sent away. It was like dominoes, like one by one. Everybody just started getting sent away. Like our parents got together and like would send them away to institutions. Um, so this kid... His name was Andrew. Mm. I met him the night before. Everybody was upset. We just got kidnapped. We got taken there. I woke up the next day and he was on top of a hill and he had taken his peach can lid and like serrated it. And he said, I'd rather be dead than be here. And he just started slitting his wrist the right way. You know. um, Yeah, I know. Vertically. Don't show the audience. Oh, yeah. No, no, don't do (laughs) that. We don't want anybody to know. If you don't know, you don't need to know. And blood just started fountaining out of him it was like it, i rem- in i've been to prison three times so i've seen a lot of violence in real life at this point it's not abstracted to me like it was then but i remember thinking how much it looked like a horror movie and how much i used to think horror movies didn't look like real violence until i actually saw something on that level and, and it, it was, was like splurting out it was mind-blowing mm-hmm. and it, it, you know it freaked me out um did they save him they air flighted him out of there they never told us what happened to him. I don't, I don't know if he died. I don't know if, um, you know, if they were, they were trying to like stitch him back together right in front of us. And they're like, don't watch. It's like, how, you know, it's. <laughs> <laughs> they sound great. Yeah. They were really good people. Sounds like it went really well at that camp that uh, your parents spent money on. Oh, I turned out fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, <laughs> so. My God. So you don't, so basically you, you feel like you just had ADD and I know how I I have ADHD. And I don't take anything for it. I was on Adderall for years, but I know how it is. You kind of feel like you're crawling in your own skin and it's like anything to make you chill the fuck out would be great. So I totally feel you on that note. And so like drugs, drinking, weed, that kind of thing was the first thing to make you kind of chill. It it wasn't even like initially it was just the culture. It was like ditching school. Yeah. You know, um, fistfights, sex, drugs, all of that to me, like, I was just really attracted to the whole lot, like the chaos of it. Mm-hmm. The drug addiction stuff didn't really emerge until I got out of that place. I was there like nine months the first okay. time I got sent away. I got sent away a couple times. Um, and when I got back, I was outside um, like a basketball game. I was, I was 16 and I was with some seniors. So I was a sophomore and these girls were seniors and they took me outside to smoke a cigarette and they were snorting coke out of a bullet. 
and I didn't know what that, I didn't even know what it was. I was, that's how naive I was there. And they're like, Hey, you want some? And I remember doing a bump and that was a cathartic experience for me. Cocaine was my first love for sure. All of a sudden, like, that's exactly what I was looking for. That inflated ego and the euphoria. Your parents just, should have just gotten you an Adderall prescription. I did. Well, they, they did do that. In, in fact, my parents used to put Ritalin. They used to crush it up and put in my applesauce when I was like six. Seven it didn't help. Um, I don't think so. The Coke was more effective. I, in, in fact, I think my neurology got so warped from oh. being on an amphetamine at that age. That now you craved and uh, that, that rush. I think I have a neurological propensity towards chemicals because of taking an amphetamine at a young age. There's a documentary coming out about me this year. Okay. It's in post-production right now. And that's one of the main hypotheses of the film is that, you know, because everyone, what happened to you? Yeah. You know, did you get molested? Mm. I didn't. Um, no trauma. Storybook, good childhood. But the parents putting you on Ritalin Young, what could be, you know, because it's like our brains aren't developed, you know, obviously until we get much older. And I, um, I resonate with you because I, I got put on an antidepressant at 16. And my brain, I don't think, was fully developed. And I have been stuck on that antidepressant and I'm 34. So yeah. I feel like I feel you. I get I get that. And I think that, you know, maybe that did create, as you said, like that propensity for having like amphetamines and having like something in your system. I th- yeah, I think so. I've heard rock stars. I don't, I don't right. I know you're married to one. So, <laughs> but um, I've heard rock stars. I, I heard Kurt Cobain. I think I heard Scott Weiland say it too. I, I, it might have been. I know Kurt Cobain definitely said it, but they were saying the same thing. They thought that the reason they got on heroin later in life was because they were on Ritalin or Adderall as a youngster. That's so interesting. I mean, I've been on, I've been on Adderall. I was on Adderall for years um, for my ADHD, and uh, I actually got to the point where I was like, I can't handle the the heart racing. Like that was what I couldn't handle, but. You, I think, were telling me that you've kind of your body and some people have this is like people that have tried a lot of drugs or done a lot of drugs is like you. It takes a lot for something to affect you. Right. Like you have a high tolerance. I tend to have a high tolerance to a lot of stuff. I mean, most drugs I have a high tolerance to except for like crystal meth. You know, just that stuff makes me so weird and out there. Uh Just a little bit will do that to me for some reason. Like my brain's not compatible probably because of the the Ritalin and Adderall when I was younger. I don't know. Right. Um, But yeah, it's, I don't, I don't, you know, my parents are amazing people and they've told me a million times that they're sorry that they put me on medication as, as he, as a young child like that. Mm -hmm. I'm a father now myself and, um. And I definitely wouldn't do that. You know, I learned mm, from that. Mm, so mm. it's one of the points of the film is to yeah. underscore that. Because I, I do think it's a very important issue that's not talked about enough. Yeah, it is hard when kids are first developing and you see these things happening. And, and it's hard because parents just want to help. And, um, you know, and doctors, you take your kid to the doctor and most Western medicine doctors are going to go, yeah, put your kid on this, put your kid on that. And not thinking about like the long term effects of what this is going to do. Um, you know, it has its pros and cons, I'm, I'm sure, in both ways. Um, but, yeah, so so then you tried Coke, and you were loved it, became, and you were 16. I became a full-blown cocaine addict. At 16. I doing, like, an eight ball a day. How did you get the Coke at 16? I, I mean, the way you get any drugs. I mean, I just, you know, I had a drug dealer. Then I started dating a girl. How did you make the money to pay for it? My, my parents had 
savings bonds that they had gotten for me for my college education. Uh, and you fucking cashed your and bonds. I, yeah. I mean, at one point I did 80, like over 80,000 at one time. That was when I was 18. But back in high school, you know, I would find a savings bond for $600, $1,000. Then I started selling it, you know, at a certain point. I started selling it just to sustain the habit. I mean, I was doing $100 worth of Coke a day at 16. I started acting the way anybody would act doing that much cocaine, especially at that age. You're not, even, you're not developed, you know. Again, your neurology is, is very fragile at that point. And I started dating this girl that was 21. She, was, uh, she went to junior, high, or junior college mm-hmm. in Santa Barbara. And she was selling Coke. Her dad was a big Coke dealer. And one night I was... I was just really, you know, tweaked out on this Coke, pacing, looking out the window. And she had me smoke heroin off tinfoil. She told me it was opium. Again, that was another, you know, life-changing moment for me. How old were you? I was 17. 17. And I started smoking heroin every day. I got physically dependent to it in high school. Did you keep doing the Coke and the heroin? Yeah. So doing both. I was doing both. So you were going up and then down and then up and then down. Yeah, and that's hard to handle when you're in your early 20s, but at 17, like, I, I mean. did your How did your parents, like, not know? Because someone who's on Coke every day, I mean. They knew. They, they knew. They knew at a certain point they gave up custody of me. Uh, they gave up custody of me, um, sent me to an orphanage for a little bit. And then I got sent back at to, 16. Yeah. And then I got or at 17 and then I got 17. sent back to another program in Utah for troubled adolescence. I graduated high school and I'd gotten some writing published when I was nine. Um, also in high school. So when you were nine, you got writing published. Yeah. What did you write when you were nine? I wrote a short story for Goosebumps fan fiction. Oh, I loved Goosebumps. And, um, and I won. So. Good job. Thank so you. you're a creative spirit. I, I would say, I yeah, you have a creative, a creative mind and a creative spirit. But I didn't want to be a writer back then because it didn't seem as exciting as being a rock star. What or, did you want to be? I think I wanted. I, I think before I was a drug addict, I wanted to probably be a, a film director. Mm-hmm. And then after I got on drugs, I just wanted to be a drug addict. Really, and that was one of the biggest problems I had is that I embraced that culture. Uh. And I'd look up to uh, artists, writers, musicians that kind of falsely romanticized drugs. They weren't talking about their friends that have died around them or going to prison or getting communicable diseases or any of the dire consequences that comes with drug addiction. There's nothing glamorous about it. But you don't know that when you're a kid. You just see the facade that they put up because that sells books, that sells records, that sells a personality. Mm-hmm. So I embraced that culture and I thought I really for a long time I thought I was doing something that was really cool. I was you were like, like I'm an artist, no one understands me. Like I do heroin, I'm poetic, I write like yeah, yeah I get exactly it. Exactly like you're that. like, you know, and then you see people like, you know, Sid Vicious and like Jimi Hendrix and like all these, you know, Jim Morrison, all these huge rock stars and Janis Joplin, like all these people that were, you know, talking about drugs. And it seems, it seems drugs. It seems like it's like part of a lifestyle. Like, oh man, they're just like these rebellious, different people. People don't get us, you know, that kind of thing. But you didn't realize like, you know, that there was so much bad to go along with that. It wasn't, you know, 
what you thought it was. It wasn't. It wasn't cool. And it took me a long time to get disillusioned by that. Yeah. So wait, you went to, okay, so let's continue. You went to, uh, your set, you got kicked out of the orphanage. Then you went to Utah. And when you went to Utah, second time. Okay. When you went to Utah, did they, do they get you sober? You can't do anything there, right? Like they can't, or did you, were you able to get drugs in there? No, I wasn't able to get drugs there. And they're not even really equipped to deal with people that are coming off heroin. I was so naive that when I got there, I was sick and I didn't realize that I was dope sick. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that I was in. You thought you just had a flu. Yeah. And they drug tested me and they're like, you came up dirty for opiates, you know, and back then I'm not going to tell any authority figure anything. So Mm -hmm. I just. I was like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. So I kicked heroin cold turkey for the first time at that place. But I think they knew. But it was, it was not equipped to deal with that. It was more for behavioral issues. So wh- while you're kicking heroin cold turkey, like, what does that feel like? Horrible. It, it, yeah. How um, long does it last? It lasts about seven days, maybe 10 days. The worst part is that you don't sleep. You know, you just, you can't sleep. Um, you're have indecisive skin temperature your skin feels like it's crawling you get diarrhea you vomit um and then you get this just really um intense panic because you know that you can't get anymore you know um and that's why people go rob liquor stores when they're in withdrawal or you know whatever it's you just get this intense panic uh yeah it's really it's really bad it's not the worst thing i've kicked we'll get into that later but methadone was a thousand times worse, worse than heroin. A thousand times worse. And isn't that what they give people to get off of heroin? Yeah. Ironic. Yeah, it's, Big yeah. pharma. They yeah. want you to be on it forever. Mm-hmm. Sorry, you can't kick it. You got to. You're stuck on it. Yeah. Love them. Yeah, they're um, they're good people. They're too. great. Um, that's so fucked, dude. Okay, so then we got out of Utah. I got out of Utah. Okay. I w- I got out of Utah, and then my parents. I my grades were okay. I got like yeah. a three point two. Wow. For my GPA. That's like me sober. <laughs> <laughs> well, I only was able to do that because I spent so much time in institutions. Right. So my parents got me into a pretty prestigious writing internship program in, in Worcester, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an internship program. So it was like a year in between high school and college, mm-hmm. you know, just something to put on your resume or whatever. And everybody that's there, they give you an apartment, they give you an $80 stipend allowance a week. Um, and then you have to go. To be an intern, and my internship was going to public access channel and learning how to write, you know, spec screenplays and how production works. When I got out there, I met my first true love, Aww. this girl, and I just became passionately head over heels in love with her. And we got into drugs pretty quickly. She was bulimic, she had her own set of issues. And I learned, you know, growing up in upper middle class Santa Barbara, I had no experience with ghettos mm-hmm. and going into them to score drugs. And so I started kind of going there and looking for what, you know, I think we were doing crack. For, Wait, how did you meet the bulimic girl? She was at that internship She was in program. the internship program. Yeah. And so whose idea was it to score drugs? Oh, I, right from the first night that I met her, you know, it was, we were at like a keg party there. It was a bunch of college age kids right um and we got into you know we're doing coke and we're taking ecstasy we did a lot of mushrooms and acid out there and then i told her that i used to do heroin in california black tar Mm -hmm. out here out there it's china white so Mm -hmm. it's powder Mm -hmm. and she wanted to try it 
And so I went and I got burned a bunch of times. You know, I'd go, I'd probably sound like a cop. Hey, you know where I can get any heroin? You know, I didn't know the cool um, lingo. lingo. Mm -hmm. And eventually I figured out how to get it and we started snorting it and we got addicted to it out there. And one night we were completely physically dependent at this point, you know, just snorting it. Like I said, it's powder. And you were doing the internship still showing up and. I was having problems, you know, I was missing work. Right. Um, there were rumors that I was doing heroin there and I kept denying it. And one night I was dope sick with her and a couple other guys that we were doing heroin with out there. And I went out to, um, score to this place called King street in Worcester and it was snowing. Mm -hmm. Now I'm definitely not racist at all. Mm -hmm. And I am all about equality, but I learned quickly out there that, the Puerto Rican guys are the guys to buy heroin off of. Mm -hmm. I always got burned by the black guys out there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and I don't know if that's a gang thing or whatever, but those are the guys that had it. Mm -hmm. This particular night, it was snowing. I only saw a black guy out there. I was really desperate though. And I just went up to him and I asked, I was going to get a bundle. It was like 80 bucks, Mm -hmm. something like that. He said, yeah, I can, you know, I, I have some come with me into this abandoned building. So naively, I followed him in there. My lord, this is like a horror movie. Come in with me into the abandoned building. Uh, and well, and you know, obviously, okay. your yeah. judgment's you're, so fucking and you're, skewed. And you're desperate, yeah. You know, and it's like, so I, I went with him, and we get to the stairwell. You know, and the windows had been replaced by plywood with graffiti on it. And as soon as he asked me to take out the money, he pulled out a gun, and he started accusing me of being a cop. His eyes were really glassy. I don't know if he was on PCP or if he was smoking crack, whatever the case. He was hopped up on something. And, he, and I'm trying to explain to him that, um, you know, that I'm not a cop. So he wants me to shoot it in front of him. And I was like, I only, you know, I snort it. I'm a college kid. He pulls out this aged syringe out of his sock. Oh, no. This is an HIV infested <sighs> Massachusetts, in Worcester, Massachusetts. Oh, my God. HIV epidemic raging on. At this point, 0304 is still very much prevalent there. And I was like, I don't even know how to do that. And before that, I had an entire, you know, I, my a whole lifetime phobia of needles. Dude. So he, he, I explained to him, I don't know how to do it. And he cooks the shot up in front of me. He's like, put your arm out. Oh I put my, my arm God. out. And so he shot me up with this dirty syringe. It was the first time I ever did it. And at gunpoint, I got, yeah. And when people go, well, it's not like there was a fucking gun to your head. Well, You're like, well, in my situation, there was, there was a gun to my head. Oh I my mean, God, and look, I'm not, look, I don't want people listening to think that I think I'm some sort of victim. Like I no, chose no. to do yeah, drugs yeah, yeah, yeah. the whole time. No, I don't and think I can, anyone's thinking that. I can own up to that. <laughs> yeah. But like, fuck, yeah. that was, yeah, like I that's said, gnarly was, though. The cocaine thing was, was cathartic. It was life changing. Yeah. The smoking heroin for the first time, but shooting heroin, my life. It was like pressing a self-destruct button. Did you love it instantly? I, I, yeah, it was. Instantly. Even with the dirty needle in the situation, you were like, this is the best. Yeah. It was like having sex for the first time and what just being like, fuck? oh my God, there's this whole world that I don't I even know. I hear about. that from so many people. Um, Not to, God. No, say, not excited, to encourage excited, heroin. But I, no, obviously then I hear that their whole life falls apart. So it's like, oh, one second of pleasure is like what? Like a nightmare for the rest of your life. But um, I do hear that from many people saying it's like, opening a new realm the way that i describe it in my book is you get a rush of pins and needles 
you know, it's when you drink alcohol, you know, that warmth that courses through your body. It's similar to that. And then it feels like you remember when you were a kid and your parents wake you up for school and you'd be like, let me sleep for five more minutes. And then you'd just be get in, the best coziest, in that limbo oh, between that cozy sleep. Yeah. Sleep and reality. That's what heroin feels like. Mm-hmm. And that's that is the that right there was the feeling. If I could design a feeling that I wanted from a narcotic, that was it. Mm-hmm. And within that cozy bliss, no more insecurity, no more thinking about all the bad things that I've done to my family. I'm just at peace. And I didn't realize what an illusion that was then. Shortly thereafter, we got kicked out of that program. We were homeless there for a while. What um, was homeless like? We used to Horrible. Have to, we used to have to break into cars because it was snowing. Did you ever feel bad? Did you ever have remorse, like feel bad for your parents or feel bad for the then. people that you were robbing? Not then. You know? Why do you think you didn't? I think I had a lot of resentment towards them for holding me back, putting me on amphetamines, trying to put blame on anybody but myself, you know? Right. And like, as I've healed and gotten older, I realized that that's not true and that I need to own up to my share of it. And that even if you have resentments towards people, you can't use that as an excuse to shoot up heroin or, you know, to run around and do stuff like this. But anyway, so I was homeless. Um, moved back to Santa Barbara. I stole $80,000 worth of savings bonds. I uh, bought a kilo of cocaine. I was going to be a coke dealer, abortion, jail, rehabs, moved out. To what, what did you go to jail for the first time? <sighs> um, domestic violence. Okay. So you which were, with I, which, your first girlfriend, was yeah. it the bulimic girl? Mm-hmm. Okay. And the reason I got that is she was smoking crack pregnant mm-hmm. and you freaked out i freaked out i never hit her i've never mm-hmm. hit a woman mm-hmm. i can say that um never not once mm-hmm. any woman i've dated would say that they'll probably say i'm an asshole and i'm emotionally abusive which i'm not saying is okay either i've definitely grown since i the person i was back then but mm-hmm. never hit her never hit any girls i try to stop her from smoking crack i chased her down the street mm-hmm. and there are these like surfer guys this is in santa barbara and they saw me chasing this girl down the street. So they tried to stop me. And one of them put their hand on me. And I said, don't touch me. Put his hand on me again. And I punched him. They called the police. Mm-hmm. I continued to chase her. By the time I caught up with her, I had grabbed her. By, like, I grabbed her sweatshirt. I was so hurt that she was smoking crack pregnant because I really wanted to have a kid. Mm-hmm. I really loved her. Mm-hmm. And... When I grabbed her, she fell off a curb. And I fell like on top of her. Like we both just tumbled off this curb. And then I just felt a hand grab me and, and handcuff me. Did you did she lose the baby? We got an abortion. She she chose to have an abortion. Yeah. And were you smoking crack while she was pregnant? Yeah. So you didn't want her to smoke, but you were still smoking. Yeah. So that was probably really hard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. For the whole situation. And and I'll say this all years later and we'll get to it, but m- my wife, when she got pregnant, she was a really bad alcoholic mm-hmm. and I quit drinking to show just solidarity towards her mm-hmm. because I remember that you have to smoking crack. She, you know, it's not like her addiction just went away just because she got pregnant. 
all those years later, I learned from that mistake yeah, and have to be supportive of one another. And you know? I stopped drinking, um, you know. Okay. So you went to jail <laughs> and how long did you go to jail for that? You said I, I got sentenced you, to a year, a year, but um, you did, but it was like kind of in an installment plan. Okay. Like I was, it was a suspended sentence kept sending me away for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days for dirty drug test. She broke my nose month after that okay and she got arrested for domestic violence and the charges disappeared the next day um and she went to court saying i never put hand like i never hit her there was no marks on her or anything but I, there was no way for me to beat the case and then she actually broke my nose i didn't tell the police that um we were just in a really bad tumultuous Toxic, relationship yeah. as what will happen when you're in a drug relationship like that um we were together about a year um i was in and out of jail rehabs and eventually, you know, we broke up. Then I was homeless when I was 19 for a while in Santa Barbara and then a little bit down here on Skid Row, mm -hmm. just running around doing drugs. When she left me, I just went completely off the deep end. Mm -hmm. And eventually I, I went out to Florida and all sorts of horrible stuff. How did you get around to all these places when you didn't when you were homeless? What do you mean? Like, how did you get to Florida from here? When I when I went to Florida, it was because I, I was just, I was sick of being strung out. And I asked, I hadn't talked to my parents in months. And I was like, I, I need help. And they're like, okay, we'll put you in this rehab. But it was in Florida. So, you know, they were very supportive and they were paying for me to go in and out of rehab for a long, long time. Um, they I, never gave up on you. They never gave up on me. And they definitely instilled unconditional love that I'll always apply towards my own my own two kids I have one on the way now too I have one and I have another one coming um when I was in Florida so much horrible stuff happened in Florida it's too much to cover in an hour podcast but right. I got a possession of heroin got a felony out there um after rehab in Florida yeah served some time out there in jail how, how come all this treatment all the rehab all the therapy all the talk all this all that what made you keep going back to drugs what do you think made you keep going back? I think that the more you make mistakes, um, you know, the, the more all this horrible stuff happens. The harder you feel it is that, to recover. That, that baggage starts weighing you down uh -huh. and it starts haunting you when you're off the drugs. You know, you're on heroin for so long, you don't have to deal with any of that stuff. And then you get sober and all of a sudden it comes back through the floodgate, you know, and you're just like this barrage of like horrible fucked up stuff that you've done and you have to face that. And like nowadays I can look at myself in the mirror and I'm okay with the person that I'm looking that, you know, I'm looking at. Um, but it took me a long, long time to be like that. After I got out of jail in Florida, I came back to Santa Barbara. I, I left with the felony or with a warrant out here. So I had to go do time here. I was in and out of jail for a long time. Eventually um, I became a associate producer for Spike TV and how the fuck did that okay wait we're gonna <laughs> take a quick break and we'll be right back with ryan leone on worst first hey guys we're back with ryan leone on worst first we are talking about his crazy worst i would say worst first life every day has been <laughs> the, the worst, worst first, first. He has his novel, Wasting Talent, which if you haven't read it, it's about everything he's talking about right now. So we're just going to keep going. Um, you were talking about now you got this internship at Spike TV. 
I mean, fuck, I was, I fucking played by the rules and all this shit. I couldn't get a fucking internship at Spike TV. No. So you got a lot of good breaks too. So was, right? with Spike TV, I'll cover this really yeah. quickly because I want to get into the prison stuff. But right. my best friend who passed away last year, oh, I'm sorry, right here, I'm died sorry. of a drug overdose. I'm, I'm actually starting a Narcan initiative to give. You know what Narcan is? Narcan's to reverse uh, an overdose. An overdose, yeah. 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 And I'm calling it the Paul Project in honor yeah. of him. But that was my best friend. And he had gotten, um, he made like these really crazy underground films. It was kind of like Jackass, mm-hmm. but way darker. Like mm-hmm. you go around smashing cop car windows with baseball bats and hardcore crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. In that film, he lit himself on fire with a wet layer. So you put like a wet mm-hmm. piece of clothing and then you light the exterior layer on fire. And that's what they do for films for, mm-hmm. you know, for stunts. They messed up and his entire body got burned very badly. Skin grafts, everything. Mm-hmm. This is when he was like 16. Mm-hmm. He had that footage though. We grew up and we became really hardcore drug addicts together. And he had that footage and he's like, Spike wants to buy it for wildest moments caught on tape. Mm-hmm. Now at that point, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew that I wanted to be in the entertainment industry in some capacity. So I took it as an opportunity to, I was like, he gave me the guy's phone number and address. I told the guy, I said, Hey, this footage is too valuable to send. I want to mm-hmm. meet up with you in person. So I went and met up with him at Lucky Strikes in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And I struck up a conversation. He liked me, and that's how that gig started. And I was making like really good money back then. I was making like three thousand a week mm-hmm. legally, mm-hmm. and you know, buying footage like that, mm-hmm. like my friend getting put on fire, and then I'd broker it to them. I buy a clip for like two hundred dollars, sell it for like seven hundred to them. Right. Eventually, they just made me an associate producer with them. Oh, smart. So, were you clean? No. Okay. And my crack addiction had really taken off at that point because now I had money and like mm-hmm. having that kind of money just threw fuel on an already blazing fire. So you were doing crack and associate producing and heroin, heroin, <laughs> crack. And, and producing. these guys didn't know, like, do you think they knew? They for sure knew I'd go to meetings down here and they'd be like, Hey man, you need to clean up. You Would know? they say that to I you? I was covered. I look like the before fucking picture for proactive. Oh, I mean, they knew no. that I was a junkie, you yeah. know? There's no way that I, and I smelled like shit too. Like right. there's no way that they could not know. And they said it, you know? And so I, I kept going in, in and out of rehabs. I've been to like 25 rehabs at this point um, in my life now. I'm at that point, I don't know, 10, whatever it was. Um, my drug habit got so bad that I started selling drugs to support it. It's the only way I could do it. Uh, you know, I, I'm not exaggerating. I was smoking $600 worth of crack a day at that point. Jesus, what does crack make you feel like? <sighs> like uh, hyper? Like a weirdo? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Just myself? <laughs> just me as I am? <laughs> I'm like, oh, I feel the same. Just totally, I mean, Like, do you stuck. feel like, 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 what, like what made you like it? What do you like about crack? Getting out of my own head. How does it get you out of your head? Because it makes you, it turns you into such a weirdo. Like I mean, I'm already like, a weirdo. Like, but this in makes a weirdo, you a like weirdo. make you think a lot, make you think about weird shit. It would make me think about weird shit. I get paranoid. I get horny, and sometimes both at the same time, Jesus. which is like a really fucking weird combination. Just walking around with a heart on the cops here, yeah, like staring out the window. <laughs> Jesus, like but who would want to feel that way? Paranoid and horny doesn't sound fun. That's a testament to how 
much I hated myself. You just didn't want to feel sober. I just didn't want to be in my head anymore. Sober you had to think about your past and your parents. And it wasn't even that bad at that point. Okay, yeah. My life got so much worse. Oh, boy. So I started selling drugs and a lot of drugs, Mm -hmm. kilos of MDMA. That was my big thing. I was selling ecstasy. Where do you get the drugs from? That's a whole other story. Oh, my uh, God. Um. Jesus. Like, how do you, how does like a drug dealer be like, okay, I'm going to go get some MDMA. Is there like someone that you, how do you find the person who makes the MDMA? Is it just from running in shady circles? No, no, this is a good story. So I'm going to tell you, Okay, but we're going to have to do another episode too, because I can't (laughs) cover all those. (laughs) We don't have to, you don't have to tell me that story. I want to talk about your recovery. I want to talk about the good part. I want to talk about how you got to where you are now, where you're sober you have a beautiful wife. Your wife, your wife, right? You guys are married, or is we're, it your girlfriend? Not You're not married, but you have a oh, oh, have a, a wonderful significant other. We have a two. And you a have half a two year and a half year old child. You have a baby on the way. You have a house. You're you know you drive a nice car. You're doing you're doing well, and you are not on drugs anymore. And you've overcome all this. You've made friends with celebrities who I'm not going to name. That you have. You're going to be writing their books, you know, like you have so many beautiful things on the horizon. How did you get to that point? How did you finally say enough is enough? It's it's so hard to answer a question like that because it's so convoluted to where I was, where I'm talking about right before right. this point to then. That's yeah. what, you know, that's why. Um, so do you want me to like give you the cliff notes of what got me to like Yeah, well, that? how like how many more times do you go to jail and do drugs and get hooked to heroin and get hooked to crack and like what was the breaking point that you okay, said? Okay, so 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 I started selling drugs. That's a it's that's a good story, but I will save that for another time. Yeah. Eventually I got busted by the FBI and DEA. Okay. You know, and I got arrested, they let me go. Okay. I had no idea why. How I much did, money were you making? 10,000 a week. Okay. You know, that was on average. Sometimes I make 70 grand in one deal though. So, I mean, just, I had way more, I had so much money at that time. I was never in it for the money either. It was just to support my habit. Mm-hmm. But at that level, it just started, money just started flowing in like that. Eventually I got busted and I was facing 10 to life. Mm-hmm. That's what they told me. You're going to mm-hmm. do 10 years. Mm-hmm. I th- In my head, I was so delusional at that point that I thought, um, I had so much money that I'd be able to pay my way out of it. I thought that's how it worked. You thought you could just pay the cops to not put you in jail? I had like a quarter million dollars cash that I was like, okay, I can give them that. That's not even a lot of money. But like at that time, I thought it was. You know, I was 23 years old at the time. Then they told my attorney, we're going to indict his girlfriend. I had a girlfriend at the time. She was five years older than me. We've been together like for a few years. And we made a deal where I'd go turn myself in. Mm-hmm. It's like, all right, I'll go turn myself into the feds, mm-hmm. but you can't indict her federally. Mm-hmm. So they made a deal with my attorney that said that. I turned myself in. I didn't come out for four and a half years. I thought I was going to get out like within a couple of days. I thought I'd get bail. That's you went my, in at 24? At 23. 23 years old, federal prison. Mm-hmm. And you were in there for four years. Yeah. With all those crazy dudes. Mm-hmm. Did you get raped? No. Did they try to rape you? No. No one tried to rape you? No. And you were like handsome. I've never been offered 
to prostitute myself for drugs and I never got raped in prison. I'm not saying I wanted to, right, but right, no. right. these so, are just weird myths that don't, fu- that don't always happen. happen. Cause I thought for sure, like when wasn't I was, there, aren't there guys banging each other in prison? Not overtly. I, I never knew anybody that was, was having sex in there. It, it's there's poli- That's a whole other thing. There's politics in there that would prohibit you from doing that. You're not allowed to do that. You get murdered if you get caught engaging in homosexual activity. I'm sure it happened. You were so young. Yeah, I'm sure. Were you one of the youngest? Yeah. And did people protect you or did they? Yeah. Pu- yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think a lot of people looked at me as like a younger brother, um, kind of like a clownish kind of guy. Not to be, t- you know, I was scared to go to prison. I, I wasn't like a tough guy or anything. I was a drug addict mm. and I definitely didn't belong there. In federal prison, you're dealing with like very serious yeah, people. Yeah, people and murdered people. It's, and... it's the worst of the worst. Yeah. It's the, you're, you don't have a beef with the state. You have a beef with the with the whole United States government. So anyway, so I go to prison and um, my girlfriend that I turned myself in for, she died while I was in there. And How did she die? She died of an drug overdose. Orders. And this is the worst part about that. After I turned myself in so they wouldn't arrest her, the state arrested her. So the feds were like, well, we didn't arrest her, yeah. but they handed it to the state. They, so they basically tricked us into me turning myself in. And then she died a fugitive. <clears throat> she was scared, alone in Las Vegas. And she got found with a needle in her arm. They tricked us. You know, I yeah. turned myself in under the pretense that they would let her, go. let her go. So this is how I got sober. I got sober for three years in that term. And yeah, prison was horrible. Um, what was the worst part about prison? I, I mean, aside from the almost near daily violence, you know, people getting stabbed, um, I've seen people, I, I, I told this story um, on a different podcast. I saw somebody throw they got baby oil and they put it in a coffee cup and put it in the microwave and boiled it and threw it on somebody's face and their eyeball came out like a dangling earring. And I watched it and I can still hear that scream like reverberating down some like endless corridor. That PTSD haunts me. That was one of the worst things I saw. I saw people get stabbed. I'd say the worst part, honestly, was just the barbaric disregard that the guards had. They treated us like we weren't human beings. They don't give you a pillow, for instance. Basic, you know. Human needs. Basic conduits for comfort Mm -hmm. that they won't give you because they make you feel like you're less than human. Mm -hmm. That was the worst part. I did drugs the whole time I was in prison, except for the last year. How do you get drugs in prison? People bring them in in the visiting room. Um, They exchange a balloon. Like, you know, say say Tommy's in, in prison, mm-hmm. you go visit him. He told me that they drank and smoked and everything in his prison too. And he was in el- isolation. They I still remember, got it to I, him. Yeah, yeah. I, I read that in his book. Yeah. They'd slide him Pruno. under the door. Yeah. yeah. Pruno. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, people bring balloons full of drugs. You get two kisses in a contact visit and they just slide the balloon in and then you swallow bomb. it and you then throw it up, later. throw it up later. And then guards bring it in quite a bit as well. Guards. Yeah. Oh. Nowadays, they're having drones drop off packages. I heard about that. Um, so I was doing drugs the, the whole time, always in debt, petrified that I was going to get murdered in there over debts. 
And I almost did. Because you owed people. I owed people. I owed $5,000 at one point. And my freaked out parents were helping me, helping me. And then at a certain point, they're just like, you know. So you were like, I need money because I got to pay, you know, this guy over here that I owe yeah. money to. And your parents were like, oh, okay, because we don't want you to get up murdered. To a cer- yeah, up to a certain point. And How then, much did they pay? Oh, my. Like thousands? Tens of thousands. Oh, my God. Your poor parents. Yeah. Yeah. Do you sit here now and Absolutely. feel so yeah. bad for Absolutely. Your and I make yeah. an effort every single day. To tell to, them thank to, you yeah. and I love you. And yeah. Thank you for sticking by me. Yeah. yeah. Every day. Yeah. And um, what, what ended up happening ultimately at the end of that term, I was in there four and a half years. Mm-hmm. The last year that I was in there, somebody gave me heroin. Someone I didn't know. And they were like, hey, I have, I heard you do heroin. I was like, I do, you know? And so they gave me some. An hour later, I got drug tested. The guy set me up, you know, he's a snitch. And uh, I, they put me in solitary confinement for 60 days. No book, mm-hmm. uh, no radio, nothing. Just yeah. me inside my own fucking that mind. That was him for six months. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I did 60 days. That's yeah. the longest. Yeah. No, no. Well, yeah. this last term, I did four months in there. But yeah, yeah it, it. it he, he told me it was absolutely insane. It, when I was in state, yeah. they, I had a, a celly. You know, I had a mm-hmm. roommate or whatever, but yeah. in the feds, I was by myself. And what happened is my grandfather died while I was in there and they came and told me. And usually in a situation like that, I would self-medicate, but I got, you know, I just went back to my cell and I had to sit there in my own shit and think about the fact that he died knowing I was a junkie mm-hmm. and there's nothing I could do about that. It made me completely rethink my life. Wow. And I stayed sober for three years after that. Point. Good. Yeah. And then you stayed sober for three years and then you got back on. My, my book got published. So you wrote the book. In prison. In prison. Mm-hmm. How'd you get a publishing deal? I self-published it. Good for you. Mm-hmm. I sold 177,000 copies. Good for you. Where can we get this book right now? On Amazon. Wasting Talent mm-hmm. on Amazon, Ryan Leone. And it says 100% no, op- of your proceeds from this book will go to prison reform. I donate great. every yeah. cent from that book um and i got a film deal from it but yeah we'll get into that um i'm gonna try to just get through this real quick so i you know i got out i got sober for three years i did i was happy Mm -hmm. you know i learned in there what really helped me get sober was fitness Mm -hmm. you know i worked out in the same dopamine and endorphin release you know it was tantamount to drugs right now i could do it without you know having to spend $200 $200 a day, you know, and it's a healthy addiction. I started feeling good. I started looking good. Like, yeah. uh, my confidence for once I wasn't insecure anymore. I was confident. I got out. My life was great. Got the book published. It did okay in the beginning. Yeah. It, it got progressively better as the years went on, but I, I got engaged to this girl. Everything was going good. We had a condo down in Encino at a BMW. Everything was cool. And then my friend, had LSD and he's like, Hey, we can trip sober. He was sober too. And I, and again, that old way of thinking, I'm an artist. Mm. I can do acid and have introspection. And the truth is, is you get way, way more valid in real introspection without any drugs. Mm. You don't need psychedelics to do that. Although I've had some good profound experiences with insights, but I did the LSD. The next day, I just didn't feel sober anymore. And a week later, I had a needle in my arm again. Jesus. That was in 2015. Wow. 
And so then, all right, we're going to, I'm going to do the cliff notes here. So then, um, in and out of rehabs again, um, I'm, I'm still on federal parole. Oh my God. I tell them that I relapsed, which I shouldn't have done. Mm. Like, Hey, I relapsed. I really, I want help. I had the best intentions with it. Uh, but then they were on me, you know, and they wouldn't let me come off parole. Mm. I ended up getting a fan letter from a woman in, um, in Colorado. Mm. She's like, Hey, like your biggest fan. I saw a picture of her and I was like, oh, I'll fly you out to California. We got married a week later. Oh my gosh. We'd been up for like a few days on cocaine at the time. Worst year of my life was being married to her. Like just the, I, I always been in toxic relationships. That one was the most. Yeah. And eventually I got in a car accident. Um, I had had a little bit to drink before that. I got a DUI, but I blew a 0.06, which isn't a DUI. The legal limit in California is 0.08. My PO said, nope, we're sending you back to, to prison anyway for a violation. Even, even like, I beat the case. I, I went to court in the state. I beat it. I had to go back to prison for 90 days. Mm-hmm. I lost everything. My wife left, lost my car. Get out. Now I really want to change. This mm-hmm. is in 2017. Mm-hmm. There was interest with getting a film deal for that movie mm-hmm. or for the book. Um, I went to AA voluntarily. I met a girl. She was a prostitute. She told me that she'd been getting raped and beat up, going to meeting guys off back pages. She couldn't get conventional employment because she had felonies. Mm-hmm. She was in her twenties. She said, will you go with me to this hotel and make sure that I'm okay? Um, I'm just sick of getting abused. And I, t- I literally told her there's text messages. I said, you don't need to do this. You're better than this. Mm-hmm. I don't judge anybody. Consensual mm-hmm. adults, I think, should be able to do what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, I realize it's illegal, but I go with her to the hotel to make sure she's okay. It's an undercover sting operation. Oh boy! I've been out of prison for two weeks for the violation. I bail out, and I didn't realize that pimping and pandering, which is what they had charged me with, which is I didn't even do that. Um, it should have been protecting a prostitute, which is basically making sure that a sex worker is, is, you know, not in harm's way or whatever. Um, it, it carries a mandatory minimum of three years in state prison. Plus the feds were trying to give me a huge violation on top of that. Then I meet oh this God. girl that I'm yeah. with now, beautiful, wonderful woman I'm in love with. I get her pregnant, like within two weeks, I'm out on bail knowing I'm going back to prison for years. Mm-hmm. I get her pregnant and she's like, I want to keep it. And we we're both hardcore alcoholics at the time. By that point in my life, I'm drinking like two fists of whiskey a day. Um, and I never had a problem with alcohol, but it had just kind of like evolved into that. Mm-hmm. Then I get a film deal for that book right around that time. My drinking is out of control. My parents kicked me out. I'm homeless again. I get the film deal. And I end up meeting some people that want to make a documentary about my life. One of my closest friends is this guy, Jim Oles, who wrote the screenplay for the David Fincher film Fight Club. Mm-hmm. Brad Pitt, Edward Norton. It's one of my favorite movies. Yeah, same. He's one of, um, one of my closest friends. He's a mentor to me. He's the screenwriter of that. He's like, yeah, I'll, I'll be the writer for that documentary. We have all this archive. Everything I've told you we have like on film for some weird reason. I have my whole life on film. Mm-hmm. So we start doing this um, documentary about my life. And I know I'm going back to prison. I know that I'm going to miss the birth of my first kid. I start getting press. Mm-hmm. Huffington Post is covering me. Penthouse, a local newspaper, 
celebrities are throwing me an event. You know, I'm meeting all these famous people that were just heroes to me. And now I'm with them. And I went crazy. I, I literally lost my mind. I had a full-blown emotional breakdown. Mm-hmm. Staying up for eight, nine days, not on drugs. Thinking that, that people were trying to kill me. I thought that my parole officer was trying to kill me because I was pushing prison reform. Did you get a little bit paranoid schizophrenic? Yeah, I mean, this is all. In the I have it in my family. That's the only reason it's, why, because it sounds like it's really. It's re- I'll show you yeah. clips of it after mm-hmm. this. And it's really scary. Like, you know, I lost like fifteen. 20 and you weren't pounds. on drugs at this point. Mm-mm. It was just just a, the surreal surrealness of your life, what your life had become. Yeah, it's it, kind of triggering. It, it was just it was too much. Mm-hmm. And eventually, they just put me back in jail. They revoked my bail. You know, the feds violated me. It was horrible. How know? did they just put you back in? Did something happen? They made up shit that wasn't even true. Like, it's very convoluted, but basically, I told them I was going to start smoking marijuana medicinally and that I had a recommendation from a doctor. They said, cool, it's fine. So I started smoking weed legally with, you know, with my medical marijuana. And like two weeks later, they're like, oh, actually, um, you can't do that on federal parole. But I'm like, but you told me that I could. It doesn't matter if you've done it already, we're going to violate you. So I got violated for that. So they just kind of like sensationalized stuff, made it up. Okay, so how do we get to Ryan now, who has a baby, has a wife? I was very conscientious of the remaining seven minutes. (laughs) So I like, I systematically like, like I went through my whole life like, very quickly. I know it sucks because I can only <laughs> post an hour on Instagram. I, I can't until they make it longer. Because I, ne- I, ne- I know there's so much more. I just never shut the fuck up. No, it's it. great. We love it. I don't shut the fuck up either. But, um, I, and you're hilarious. I watched Thank a you. bunch of your videos before um, I came here. Okay. Okay. So, worst prison term of my life. Mm-hmm. You know, I was in a bunch of different riots. Oh I got God. three ribs broke in the first week I was in there. Um, I got beat up. Got eight stitches. Um, I got sentenced to three years in the state, eight months in the feds. I did 16 months altogether. They kind of like bundled it all together, run it concurrent. You know, at that point, I'm like, documentary, that was not going to happen anymore. The film, I just fucked up everything by going crazy. Do you know who I am? You know, shit like that. I had like 300 Twitter followers. I was like, do you realize who the fuck you're talking to? Stuff like that, right? You're like, account 005 <laughs> with no face follows me. Dead. Oh, my God. I can't. So, um, but I got healthy in there, you know? And my girlfriend at the time and I, we, it wasn't even a real relationship. It was like a drunken fling, but she s- stood by me the whole time. Mm-hmm. We worked on our relationship and I really fell in love with her while I was in prison. Like, she was just amazing to me and I did not deserve that. I was right. a piece of shit to her. But she just extended that kind of unconditional love that I'd learned from my family. And so we got really close while I was in there. Mm-hmm. Horrible, traumatic term. Like I said, multiple riots. Worst term I, I did. That 16 months was infinitely worse than mm-hmm. that other term that I did. The, long, the four and a half year one. Mm-hmm. So I get out and I'm just. What year was it? I got out in 2019. Uh, mm-hmm. I get out. This is literally like a year ago. Yeah, I get out and uh, I can't get any employment. I'm going and I'm trying so hard to provide for my family and I can't. Like 
nobody will hire me. Fast mm-hmm. food restaurants, I'm not saying that that's not right, a right. worthy profession, but they wouldn't hire me. I was getting really despondent. You know, I was like, fuck, you know, I didn't know what to do. And um, don't the prisons have placement for you after you serve time? Don't they try to place you? No. No, they don't. No, okay. that's a whole nother. Okay, we got five minutes. I'm okay. going to go harder. Right okay, now. go ahead. All right, so, um, so I finally get a job in like Reseda, like mm-hmm. working for a telemarketing place. I'm making like 15 bucks an hour. Mm-hmm. There's like these weird like emo managers with like gay jeerings like <laughs> talking down to me. And mm-hmm. one day I was like, you know what? Fuck you, man. Mm-hmm. I couldn't. It was just too demoralizing. Mm-hmm. And I left. And the next day, two things happened. I got invited up to Johnny Depp's house. Mm-hmm. He's a fan of my book. Mm-hmm. That didn't change my life. But it did in a lot of ways because it gave me this confidence. It's like somebody that I'd always admired, really looked up to. Mm-hmm. And he was giving me validation. Coincidentally, the same day, I was on a podcast. This guy, American Dope, Al Prophet, mm-hmm. got like 400,000 views. So I started my own YouTube channel. That's my name, Ryan Leone. I have not worked a day since then. Good right? for you. Like my film deal came back. God bless. We got the documentary back into production. I've signed five contracts this year. I've sold two Great. screenplays. Oh my God. And in the midst of all that, YouTube completely changed my life and then Patreon, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And and I came out with a comedy album we were talking about. That's mm-hmm. why I brought him up with Johnny. Yeah, he came up Johnny's with you on and Johnny there. Depp did a comedy album. Well, together. he's he's a uh, guest star on it. Mm-hmm. And so is Tommy Chong, Boston George from Blow, mm-hmm. Freeway Ricky Ross, um, Simon, Dirt Nasty. Mm-hmm. I always say they're real names. Simon Sim- Rex. Dirt, Dirt Nasty. That, his, that persona. Uh, Nick Stahl. Yeah. And, uh, but anyway, yeah, so that came out. In the midst of all of that, my best friend died of an overdose and it just completely changed the way that I look at my life. You know, mm-hmm. I was out, I was being a father. I love my son. Every time I look at him, it gives me so much purpose in my life. It's the most profound love I've ever experienced. And it really makes me think about how I made my own parents feel. Mm-hmm. And it's helped me so much. And she just got pregnant again. So right. we got another one on the way. And is she sober now too? Yeah. Good. Because you need that kind of support. Yep. And like, I haven't been, I've fucked up mm-hmm. over the last year. Mm-hmm. I've slipped. You know, I'm a legitimate drug addict. But, I, you right. know, and I, I know cliche, but I, I really do take it one day at a time. And now I'm, I'm able to support a family of three just off my creative stuff, off Patreon, YouTube book royalties which i donate all those Mm -hmm. anytime you buy a paperback i use the money to send free books to inmates that's nice um but the most important thing besides being a father besides being a good husband besides being a good son and friend is when my friend paul harper died his girlfriend is or his fiance found him oh boy if they had narcan in the house Mm. he'd still be alive you know, she found him like 10 minutes too late. I feel like everyone should have it in the house. And the way that I look at, when I'm, ra- when I'm wrapping it up clean, everybody should have it in the house. Mm-hmm. And in states, a lot of places they give it away for free. There's states where they charge $150 for two doses of it. What heroin addict is going to spend $150 on two doses of Narcan? You know, 
people have a hard time spending $3 for a pack of condoms. You know, they're not going to spend 150 for that. So my goal now is to, I, I've filed with the Secretary of State, got the Paul Narcan project. That's the most important thing in my life, like mm-hmm. way above my career, because I feel that one way that you have to stay, you know, one thing that keeps everybody sober, it's, it's an indispensable part of recovery is altruism. You have to pay your karmic debt and you have to do selfless acts yes. to make the world a better place. And in turn, it makes you feel okay with yourself. Yeah, give back. That's how I can stay off drugs. Yeah. I know that every day I make an effort to make the world a better place, mm-hmm. not a worse place. Mm-hmm. And I spent so many years being parasitical. Yeah. You know, being a leech on society. You're probably responsible for people dying, selling drugs. Like, in no way... Have I ever, you know, glorified that or or I hope that people don't interpret it that way. These are all things that I have to deal with now. That's how I deal with them is I try as hard as I can to, to do what I, I need to do to make the world better around me. Um, so that's something that's coming in the near future. The Paul Narcan project. I've been working really hard. Um, that, um, that artist that I gave you the painting, Sinister Monopoly, um, He's, he's really helped me raise a lot of money for it. That's amazing. You know, that's how I got it going. He donated a lot of art for me, and um, he believes in it. We've seen a lot of friends die that way. And Everyone should be able to have it, you know, in it needs to, It needs to be as ubiquitous as Tylenol or a Advil, fire yeah, extinguisher. Fire that's yeah, at a, how, you know, that needs to be in every public bathroom. Right. How many times do people find somebody overdosed they call 911. You go into a shallow state of respiratory arrest. There is an interval where you can be saved. Mm-hmm. If that was everywhere, we'd save a lot of lives. So every time that I'm going to be sending a free box of doses of Narcan, I know that that's a tangible um, a life you've saved response. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a karmic response that makes me feel better, yeah. and that that's going to save a lot of people. Yeah. Um. And that's that. I think you're on the right track now. It, it was. Um, I'm proud of you for, you know, because I know the guilt and the shame and all of that stuff is super triggering. I know it is. I mean, we've all done things in our lives that we're not proud of. And I know it's really hard being sober and having to live with thinking about it. But I think what you're doing now, you know, is the way to healing, building back the karmic good doing as much good as you possibly can right now. That's all you can do. Build it back. And it's easy. You just got to keep doing good things, whether it's the smallest thing, opening a door for a stranger, or a huge thing like doing the Narcan project, being good to people, being empathetic, being there for people. You're on the right. You're, you're doing it. You yeah. Know? No, yeah. I, I agree with every word you said. Yeah million percent yeah um just gotta be the best person that you can be now i mean god you're only 35 years old right i mean i'd like to think we're still look, pretty young i look like fucking 30 years older than you uh-uh. <laughs> i'd like to think we're still pretty young dude like we got a lot of time to to be the best fuck to 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 be the best that's right right yeah and that goes with anyone listening to this right now who is in a dark place who's struggling with addiction who feels like there's no coming back because of all the things that they've done or done to other people and the guilt that they're living with. There is, if you open your eyes tomorrow, that's another chance. 
that's another chance to turn it all around. Okay? Like, you open your eyes, that's your chance to go, you know what? The fucking stops here. This is where it stops. And this is where I flip the fucking script and I live the best possible life that I can and nothing is going to stop me from doing that. Absolutely. Not letting drugs, not letting anything else, my negative thinking, whatever. It's about building bridges after burning them, you know, and, and, you know. And it's not easy, you know, like you need support. You need support systems. You need people to call. You need, you know, books to read. You need inspiration. But it's always there. It's always around you, you know, especially, and I know people aren't like big AA fans or whatever, but if you find the right person in that community, because there are really great people. My husband has a fucking awesome sponsor. And and this is years of, you know, being back and forth with the same stuff. When you find someone who really understands you and goes, you know what? Like, we're going to get through this together. I'm not giving up on you. Then you do that. And that's what you, you know, everybody needs a shoulder to lean on sometimes, you know? Yeah. So I'm proud of you. Thank you. You got this, dude. Like, you... You know, all the crazy shit you've been through, you're 35 and the fucking buck stops here. And now it's all about positive lifestyle and all the beautiful fucking wonderful things you're going to do where you can look back and go, man, I was struggled and I did some fucked up shit and I hurt people and I hurt myself. But now I fucking have turned it around and I'm a fucking charitable man. I'm creating amazing projects. I'm writing amazing things. I'm working with incredible people. Like I have a huge bright future ahead of me and a long future. I feel really optimistic right now. And and people ask me, they're like, are you happy? And I can honestly say I am. Good. I'm happy. Good. You know, it's not, I don't need to smoke crack to get out of my head anymore because I like being in my head. I like myself. You know, and you should like yourself. Fuck. You should love yourself. I do, I do love myself. Even all the little fucking broken pieces. Like we are. That's what gives us all character. All these little weird thoughts that we have, all these little idiosyncrasies and the things we struggle with. Like I've hated myself and worked against myself for years with my anxiety disorder And now I'm like, yeah, it fucking sucks. And I would do anything to never have anxiety again. But I'm also at a point in my life where like. I am just like, you know what? I am going to learn to embrace my life. You know, I'm not going to keep fighting. I'm going to go, you know what? This is me. This is who I am. This is who I'm supposed to be. And I'm going to fucking embrace it. And I'm going to live my life this way. You know, I feel like every time we try to fight it, it just ends up worse. You know, it does. Yeah, it's it's that's, you know, it's. I also, you know make the vast you know the the majority of my income from youtube yeah and patreon just telling stories about my life is it ryan leone on youtube yeah i'll put that all here um it people always ask me they're like why because i'm very Mm self-deprecating on there yeah a lot of a lot of people are who've you know been through it and like but like extreme just honest about stay more honest than i was i'm not saying i was dishonest but i go in more explicitly people always ask me why I do that and because I find intrinsic value in sharing Being those real. life experiences with people maybe it can dissuade somebody else from going down that same path um other people that are really fucked up write me all the time and they're like hey hearing how fucked up you are makes me feel okay with mm-hmm. the mistakes I've made because I embrace them you know I'm, I'm not trying to run away from them 
I'm trying to weaponize them mm-hmm. positively, you know, use them, um, use them in a positive sense and help, help people. And that's what it's all about. As long as, you know, it's a learning experience, I feel like, you know, obviously we're human and we can do a lot of horrible, horrible things. And I'm not saying there's an excuse for every horrible thing that everyone's ever done, but I'm saying that if people genuinely can learn from their mistakes and have genuine empathy and and heal and find a new path, like that's the most, that's the best thing that can happen from it. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. So Val, that was so inspiring. It was so inspiring to have you on. Uh, we made it. Brittany, <laughs> I, re- I really minutes. appreciate it. I really, I really do appreciate it. I'm so it. grateful to have you here. And guys, make sure to pick up um, Ryan's book, Wasting Talent. And uh, make sure to follow him on YouTube and on Instagram and to hear more of his stories. Obviously, we only an hour here and he's got a plethora of stories I'm sure you guys would resonate with or not resonate with and just want to hear. You know, make sure to check him out. And uh, I'm so proud of you. Thank you so much yeah, for having me keep, on. I really appreciate the opportunity. Doing, keep doing the good stuff. Okay? Thank you, Bert. Yay. And we'll see you all next week on another episode of Worst First. Uh,